Amen. Returning to the Gospel of John, I'll be reading from chapter 8, the first 11 verses. These are the words of God. Actually, it will begin in verse 53 of the end of the previous chapter. And everyone went to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now early in the morning, he came again into the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. When they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that, that such should be stoned. But what do you say? This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest even to the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. These are the words of God. Let's ask his blessing. Heavenly Father, let your word have your way with us by means of your spirit. Convict us of our sin. Instruct us in mercy and truth. Lift us up in the light of the world, in the way we live and interact with others. Do so for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Well, as we come to this familiar passage in John's gospel, keep in mind the words from Psalm 85. Listen to them, verse 10 and 11. Mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed. Truth shall spring out of the earth, and righteousness shall look down from heaven. Psalm 85, 10 and 11. The justice and mercy of God through Jesus Christ comprise a glorious balance of the love and holiness of the triune God. It's stupefying to try to plumb the depths of what it means that God is holy, just, and merciful. How can these things all be true of him? And yet they are. And interpreting this pericope through the lens of all that we know about Jesus is really important in order to avoid erroneous applications. And erroneous applications abound with this passage. Unbelievers who hate God's law go to unbelieving school and learn this verse. Let him who is without sin throw the first stone. They get posted on social media as soon as somebody says that somebody did some great terrible sin or accusing them of some sin. Let, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. And that, that's, that's what they learn. Uh, that's the second verse that they learn. The first verse they learn is, is, is uh, Matthew 7, 1. Judge not lest you be judged. Right? They're, they're very familiar with that. And they're using those verses out of context. Um, and, and so it's really important. Mis, mis, misinterpretations abound. Um, and, and it might be that the misinterpretations are part of the reasons we have an issue with this passage itself. Um, if, in your Bibles, you might have a footnote, um, depending on which one you're reading, um, telling you that this passage was not in the earliest manuscripts that we have found. It's, it's not in there. It's not in the two oldest manuscripts um, in the found, which are their fourth century copies. So they are 
three centuries after um, the gospel was written. And in those two um, oldest manuscripts, that passage is not found. But it's found in hundreds and hundreds of manuscripts um, dated from the fifth century and on. And there's a debate as to whether or not it's called critical um, uh, textual criticism, as to whether or not this passage should be considered a legitimate part. Well, in in trying to figure out why those passages might not be in those original older texts, um, I stumbled upon these writings by Augustine. In that same century, Augustine, writing in the 4th century, said that it had been cut out of some of the manuscripts because men were afraid that this passage would grant women the right to commit adultery without penalty. And so afraid of, of, of that, ministers were removing this part from their copies of the Bible. This is what Augustine said was going on. Something to think about. Um, I, I think there's good reasons uh, to understand that this text actually was in the original. Um, and um, I'd be happy to go over those arguments with you if you, if you are interested in, in more of that. But I found it interesting to see that Augustine, even in his day, had a reason why there were some copies, apparently, that he knew about that did not have this passage in them. And it goes back to that misinterpretation. Is this passage teaching that Jesus doesn't care about sin? Is he teaching that he doesn't really care about the sin of adultery? Um, he's just going just gonna to let her go? What's going on in this passage? Well, I think we, as we dive in, the passage speaks for itself and brings out both how Jesus is dealing with this and why he's dealing with this in a particular way. So let's set this up, first of all. It appears that it is early in the morning after the end of the Feast of Booths that we had studied in the previous uh, chapter. And Jesus goes into the temple again and sits down to teach in verse 2. All the people came to him, it says. In verse 2, it says, Now early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came to him. And I'd like to make another side note with that. Because I think this is important in terms of understanding how we are to read Scripture. When it says all the people came to him, do you imagine that each and every last person in the temple came to Jesus? Is that that what that text must mean? You see, remember in John 3.26 when they were arguing, um, John's disciples came to Jesus and they they saw that, that so many of the disciples were going from John to Jesus, they would go back to John And they said to John, Rabbi, he who is with you beyond the Jordan to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing, and all are coming to him. Well, they weren't all coming to him because these disciples are going back to John saying, all are coming to him. This is is helpful to see because you can see how the term all can be used relatively rather than absolutely. This is important to avoid the heresy of universalism which is demanded if you, um, if you, again, if you have your Bibles, you've turned to chapter 12. There is this verse. <clears throat> Jesus says, And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. Now, if you, if you take a moment to take a look in your Bibles again, you probably, have, uh, you probably have it written in such a way that peoples is italicized. That's because peoples is not in the original Greek. Um, and, and so really, literally, it reads, um, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all to myself. Well, does he mean each and every last one will be drawn to him? Or is he speaking relatively with regard to the world? Or is he speaking as, uh, as this interpretation in, in the New King James, at least, says, means all kinds of peoples. You see, all, all does not require us to mean each and every last one. 
all in these passages is relative to the entirety of the population. If I, if I um, go home today and I tell my wife that um, all the church stayed for the feast, it was wonderful, but a few of you didn't, I, I wouldn't necessarily be lying, right? That would be using that word in a relative sense, talking about the vast majority of all of us were there um, at the feast afterwards. Um, so it also can mean all without distinction, or all kinds of, like all kinds of people of various ages, of various social standing and nation. So when Paul writes to Timothy, he says, Therefore I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and givings of thanks may be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all goodness and reverence. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Uh, I think interpreting, you say, even kings. <laughs> he, he wants kings to come to, to faith. He wants all kinds of people. He wants all kinds of nations. He wants all kinds of um, sinners to come to faith and belief in Jesus Christ. That's what this, this means. All the people came around to meet Jesus. Okay, back to our text now. Well, the scribes and Pharisees, having been unable to lay hands on him earlier, now try to set him up in a situation to accuse him. Look at verse 6. This they said, testing him, it says, when they bring the woman caught in adultery. They tested him that they might have something with which to accuse him. They have something, they're looking for something to accuse Jesus about. Well, now, for a moment, let's also introduce the players in the scene. The scribes and the Pharisees show up together regularly in the Gospels, but they are not exactly one in the same group. The scribes were lawyer types. They were hired um, lawyers, Jewish theolo theologians, um, hired to make expert interpretations on the law. And, and there were scribes who were Pharisees, but not all scribes were Pharisees. The Pharisees were a movement. They were a group. This movement outwardly committed to conservative religious practice. Pharisee came from the word meaning separated one. And so they emphasized the holiness and cleanliness practices of the law with passion and zeal. Writing um, books upon many, many volumes of books explaining how to apply the laws of the Torah. And so very, they were very scrupulous about how the law must be applied, must be obeyed. And their, and their initial, um, the Pharisees, some believe that maybe Ezra was the first Pharisee. There's time this, of this great renewal, this great reformation that came in. And so there was this call to take the Bible seriously, take the scriptures seriously, and to obey them. And these Pharisees separated themselves out from people who were the liberals of the day. They, they weren't interested in, in, in following the law. But over time, this went to seed, and it became um, quite a problem. Um, and, and Jesus knows it. It's full of hypocrisy. Later, uh, probably at the next Passover, six months later or so, Jesus would condemn their hypocrisy along with the scribes. If you look at Matthew chapter 27, or 23, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 23 is the passage of the eight, great, or, yeah, the eight great woes upon the scribes and Pharisees. But it begins, Jesus speaking to the multitude, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Therefore, whatever they tell you to observe, that observe and do. He's, he's, Jesus is for taking the word of God seriously, following what God says. He says, whatever they, what, what they say to observe, do, but do not do according to their works, 
for they say and do not do. For they bind heavy burdens, hard to bear, and they lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. But all their works they do to be seen by men. They make their phylacteries broad and enlarge the borders of their garments. They love the best places at the feast and the best seats in the synagogues, greetings in the marketplaces, and to be called by men, Rabbi, Rabbi. And he goes on now and just and, and shows their hypocrisy um, through, through that chapter. Reminds me of the old song, Oh Lord, it's hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way. That's what the Pharisees were like. Um, they, they wanted to be known as, as keepers of the law. They wanted to be noticed for their law-keeping. And, and this is how they uh, would, would show themselves off. So this, these, are the, these are the scribes and the Pharisees. In addition, there is the crowd that has gathered to hear the teaching of Jesus. And there's a woman brought before Jesus whom they claimed these scribes and Pharisees, they have caught in the very act of adultery, verse 4. In the very act. What's the point there? Well, in order for a person to be charged with adultery, according to the law, there had to be two or three witnesses to the very act in progress. It was not enough if you saw the woman slipping out the door one night. You had to be witness to the act of adultery taking place, which is why there weren't a lot of charges of adultery uh, taking place um, all the time. Um, this is in Deuteronomy 17 and Deuteronomy 19. And both the man and the woman would be, would be charged with the guilt of adultery, and both would be punished. The fact that they have only brought the woman demonstrated that these scribes and Pharisees were not guiltless. Remember, the scribes and Pharisees are the scrupulous ones. They're the ones that are going to make sure they follow the law perfectly. Um, where's the man? Who are the witnesses? You can't just all crowd, crowd of you come in and say, We've caught this woman. No, no. Who, who saw the act? And where is the man? So what's really going on here, in all of this, the woman is not on trial. That's not what's going on. And Jesus knows it. Jesus knows that the woman's not on trial. He's on trial. Okay? That's, so this doesn't have to do with the woman uh, at this moment at all being on trial. Jesus is the one on trial. It is Jesus whom they want to accuse. If Jesus said the woman should be put to death, here's, here's what would happen. The, the, uh, in Jerusalem, under the rule of Rome, Rome uh, did not allow the Jews to follow all of their Jewish laws. and They would not allow them to, um, to do executions. This is why Jesus is going to end up being brought before Pontius Pilate. So Rome has stopped the Jews from being able to follow their own law and bring executions. Occasionally, a vigilante group would go out and, and, you know, a lynching mob would go out and kill somebody, like we see Stephen being martyred in the book of Acts. Or if you look at the end of, of chapter 8, even here, they are, they are so um, angry with the things that Jesus is going to say as we get through the end of, uh, of chapter 8 that they pick up stones and they're going to attempt to stone Jesus in their anger. But that's not normal. That's not what's going on. So, if Jesus says, yes, she should be stoned, they know they can turn him over to the Romans. You see that? If instead he says, oh, let her go, then Jesus, because remember, he's been the one who's been teaching this mercy and this forgiveness and this, this way of, of finding um, a way to be reconciled with God without being a scribe and a Pharisee. He's been baptizing everyone. What, what's his problem? 
And, and in the midst of all this, Jesus is, um, is, is preaching mercy in such a way that if Jesus, they're, they're thinking, well, if he lets her go, then they would be able to claim that he was not truly a prophet upholding the law of Moses. So they're looking to trick him. And Jesus responds by stooping down and writing on the ground with his finger. It's just a fascinating story. What, what does that mean? What's he writing? Why is this going on? And um, in, in all honesty, we don't know for sure. But, but if we have, if we think about all of Scripture, and we think about charges being made, and we think about writing, uh, and think about writing and writing charges, there, there's a few possibilities. One of the things that comes straight out of the text is we're not told what he wrote, but we are told why he did this. It says that he did so to appear as though he did not hear. As though he did not hear. Jesus, you are the judge. Here is this woman. Jesus, could we get your attention, please? You're the judge. Here's this woman. Jesus, look, it says in, in, verse, um, in verse 7, um, after it says, as though he did not hear. And so when they continued asking him, look, don't you care? Don't you care about God's law? We're in the temple right now. What are you doing? We want you to be this judge. You were this great prophet. I can just imagine the, the pestering of, of for him to, um, to, and he refuses to take, it's as, as though the judge is refusing to take the case. Maybe what he's writing in the ground is Deuteronomy 22, 22. If a man is found lying with a woman married to a husband, then both of them shall die. The man that lay with the woman and the woman. So you shall put away the evil from Israel. Maybe he's doing this to say, I will not hear this case because you're not bringing this case before me according to the very law that you think you're following. Maybe he was writing out Jeremiah 17, 13. Jeremiah 17, 13. Now, remember, this is the day after the Feast of Booths. This is the day after Jesus had stood up and said, if any of you thirst, remember that? Back in uh, uh, 37. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Maybe the very next day he writes out in the dust, Jeremiah 17, 13. Those who depart from me shall be written in the earth because they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living waters. Their names are being written in the earth because they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living waters. Or maybe he wrote out, Mene, mene, tekel. From Daniel chapter 5, when Belshazzar sees the handwriting on the wall. The handwriting of judgment upon a, a, a nation which has gone apostate and is going to fall under the judgment of God. For they had been weighed in the balances and found wanting, is the translation that Daniel gave. And certainly that would apply to Jerusalem, Israel now. They have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. As though Jesus was saying, I'm not hearing your case. <laughs> I'm not hearing the case you're bringing to me. But since we're in a court of law situation here, let me tell you what I do know. You have been weighed in the balances. And you have been found wanting. And you will stand, you will stand again in, in the, these courts in just a few short months and say over and over and over again, scribes and Pharisees, woe to you, hypocrites. Maybe these are the things that he's writing in the, in the ground. 
Nevertheless, they keep pushing him and, he's, and, they, and they ask him to get up and answer and he raises himself up and he says to them, he who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. So regardless of, of when, they, um, when they do continue to ask him, he answers their unanswerable question with an unanswerable question of his own. This is not a new requirement of sinless perfection to be a witness in the criminal trial. He is not saying, as somebody wants to um, misuse this verse, that um, he who is without sin among you, well, if you take that in an absolute way, who could ever bring a charge against anyone? He who is without sin. Well, let's just take a quick, uh, we'll, we'll take a quick vote here. How many of you are without sin? Good, then you're in the right religion, by the way. This, this is a religion for sinners. This is, a, this is a religion for those who are lost. This is, a, this is a religion for those who are wrecks. This is a religion for those who need a savior to save them from their sins. Jesus could not mean, he could not mean, the, whoever is uh, a, in sinless perfection, you're the one who can get up. No, he's, he's going back to the point of there had to be two or three witnesses and of those two or three witnesses, the, the, the witnesses themselves had to be the first ones to throw the stones. Well, they're not following the law. They are in sin right there, right before. Whoever's without sin, what would he need? Well, he would need a witness to step forward and say, well, actually, I'm, I'm the man who saw her. Now, how would you like to be that guy? When, because what would Jesus' next question be? Well, are you the man? Are you the one that should be charged with adultery? They're all in a situation where they, are, they themselves are in sin because they, the ones who are the most scrupulous ones about the law, are not using the law rightly. They're, and, and they're not bringing, ju- they, they think they're bringing justice or they're trying to act like they're being just. They are being anything but just according to the law. So this is what Jesus is bringing before them. So, Behind all of this, these passionate law keepers represent Israel. This is the way Israel is. So, so who's really the harlot? Who's really the harlot in this story? Well, Hosea has already condemned Israel. Hosea is the one who has written, the spirit of harlotry has caused them, Israel, to stray, and they have played the harlot against their God. Hosea 4.12, Hosea 5.4, they do not direct their deeds toward turning to their God, for the spirit of harlotry is in their midst, and they do not know the Lord. These are the very kinds of words that Jesus brings upon the scribes and Pharisees later. And so Israel is the one who's been charged with harlotry by the Lord and would, in fact, be stoned as a nation by the judgment of God. So in, in, uh, in Matthew, again, at the end of, of 23, Jesus comes into Jerusalem and he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you are not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. He is not talking to individuals. He's talking to a nation. The disciples, in the very next verses, the disciples will say to him, uh, Jesus goes out of the temple. He departs from the temple. The, the, the Yahweh leaves the temple of God. Okay? The Shekinah glory is gone. 
And yet, the disciples come up to him and they show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus says to him, do you, see, do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Who is going to be stoned? The harlot is going to be stoned. Witnesses will be brought and the harlot will be stoned. But the scribes and Pharisees need to understand, she's not the harlot. You are. Y'all are. This nation is, and this city is going to be stoned. It's going to be destroyed. And in 70 AD, a generation later, all of the temple is completely laid bare. Not a stone left upon another, according to historians that write about it. And to this day, there has never been a temple built again. This is what the book of Revelation is all about, about the great harlot, who is, who, who is judged by God for having put the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to death. And his vindication of Jesus Christ is the destruction of the temple. And he becomes the new temple, the temple for all nations, the temple where by his spirit all nations are drawn to him. This woman is not the harlot. Israel is. And while Jesus is true to the scripture's demands for a criminal case, and adultery was not just a sin, but a crime, he was never light, never light on the sin of adultery and fornication. Remember, it was Jesus who said that even to lust after a woman was to commit adultery in your heart and to take violent action upon one's own body to avoid lusting was better than going to hell. It's Matthew 5, 27 through 30. It'd be better for you to pluck out your eye than to use it for such lust, he says, and end up in hell. Good word for us. It was Jesus who took the strongest view on, on, the, on the sanctity of marriage relations. There was a great debate in his day over what was required for a faithful divorce to take place. And Jesus takes this extreme conservative view. He was one that upholds the sanctity of marriage. There is no such thing as no-fault divorce in Jesus' books. Not a chance. That's not what marriage is. So Jesus' view of sexuality, of fidelity, is, 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 is of the highest, at the highest level. And so an adulteress brought to him is not someone that he takes that sin lightly in any way. But that's not the point. The point at this moment is that he's been put on trial and he turns the tables on them and he puts them on trial and finds them completely wanting. How do I know this? Look at verse 8. And he again stooped down and wrote on the ground. And those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest even to the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. So, so note well, Jesus does not play light with sexual sin. Revelation 21, 8, but the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, there it is, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. But I have to remind you of 1 Corinthians 6 as well. But such were some of you. But you were washed, you were cleansed in the blood of Jesus Christ. Sinners can be forgiven. Sinners can be washed. And so Jesus now turns to this woman in verses 8 through 11. 
She's left alone, it says, with the woman. But, but don't, let the scene, don't let the scene change on you in, in the wrong way. All the scribes and Pharisees, um, or at least the ones that were bringing the accusations, leave. But remember, there's a crowd still around. And they have heard that this woman has been caught in the very act of adultery. And now she stands before Jesus. And she, as she stands before Jesus, just imagine how tense that moment must have been. And it might be at this moment a good thing to see yourself in the story. Right there. Right there before Jesus. In your sin before Jesus. He doesn't deny that she has sinned. He doesn't say, I know it's not true. He doesn't. All he asks is, has no one condemned you? Has no one, is there no one left to accuse you? And she says, no one. You might say, no one. No one except maybe yourself, your own conscience convicting you. But then you might also say, as she did, no one, Lord. We're, we're not told whether or not that was a confession of faith. We don't know. She is sent on her way. But we do know, we know better than her, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord, Jesus, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved from the sin of adultery, from the sin of murder, from the sin of hatred, bitterness, from the sin of unbelief. For those who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And so, verse 11, she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. John 3, 17 says, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And here may be one of the clearest examples of that. Jesus did not come at that time at all. His purpose wasn't to come to judge. His purpose was to come to save, to bring salvation to all who would call upon him. And then, of course, Romans 8, 1, to those who are in Christ Jesus, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And as much as I want to, to impress upon you that we are all sinners and we are all under the judgment of God and we can't play lightly with our sin, so I want to press on you those who have confessed Christ, those who have struggled and confessed their sins. Over and over again, I hear people struggling with their guilt of their sin. And they struggle with the guilt of their sin and, their, um, and, and the consequences of that sin. And they, and they think they're under condemnation. And they don't, what, you realize, what you need to realize is you, you haven't believed the gospel then. You haven't believed the full work of, of, of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who was hung on a cross, whose hands were pierced, whose side was pierced, who had a crown of thorns shoved upon his head and bled and died for those very sins. What else do you need? You see, there's, there's no works to be done because there's no works you could do. All you need, what you need to do is you need to hear. We need to hear these wonderful, wonderful words. No condemnation. 
No condemnation. How can there be no condemnation, Lord? You know what I've done. No condemnation. How can it be? You know how that sin has affected these other people and all these people. No condemnation. It's paid for. It's done. It's over. But I feel so bad. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I felt bad for you, he says. Come. What what comes out from this story is, of course, that God would soon set forth his son as a propitiation, turning aside the wrath of God by his blood through faith to demonstrate his justice and his righteousness. And he would pass over this sin in his forbearance to demonstrate at the cross that he was just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Romans 3.23. It is there in Romans 3.23 that says, all who have sinned, all, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But then that's where Paul says, but he, but he held back out of forbearance his final justice upon this woman, upon everybody else who came before Jesus, until this work had been done by Christ, providing a full and complete propitiation of sin, so that God would both be just and the one who justifies the one who has faith in Jesus. This is true justice, and this is true mercy. And it is that way to all all who call upon Jesus in faith, to all who come before him standing in their guilt. He takes our sin, and he proclaims to us no condemnation. Isaiah writes, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Who here needs to come before the Lord in unconfessed sin or unbelief? Who has forsaken the Lord here and needs to come before the Lord and hear the words, no condemnation? Who here is still hanging on to their sin and to their guilt or making excuses for their sin and their guilt and needs to come before the Lord Jesus and stand before him? Nobody else is making any condemnation because you're the only one who knows what you've done. Does Does anyone accuse you? No, no one, Lord, but me. Who needs to come before the Lord and hear that he will have mercy on him and, that, and God will abundantly, abundantly pardon. Go and sin no more. That's what Jesus says. Because, and he, and he warns, do not look at this story, do not take this story as an excuse to go ahead and continue on in your sin because it doesn't matter. God has promised to abundantly to abundantly forgive those who call upon him, but he hasn't promised you tomorrow. He hasn't promised you tomorrow. Today's the day of salvation. Now, right now is the time to be right with God over everything. It says in, in, in Romans 2, 4, do not despise the riches of his goodness and forbearance and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to re- Repentance. What does that mean? That means that some hear the gospel, the good news that Jesus forgives sins, and think to themselves, it just doesn't really matter what I do because Jesus forgives all my sin. And, 
and that's true, but it's not true. There's a way of saying that that's not true. There's a way of saying that that says, I, look at how forbearing God is. I think it was Mark Twain who said, God and I have a deal. I, I will continue to sin and he'll continue to forgive my sins. And, and we can live that way. As, as though we knew there was going to be time still to repent. You don't know if there's time to repent. God has been long-suffering and forbearing with you. But, but, but do you know that this good, that goodness, the purpose that God does is to lead you to repentance. It's not to lead you to, to more sin, to more immorality. It's to lead you to repentance. Otherwise, you do not understand. But if you do understand, then you, then you can say, like, it doesn't matter what I do. God just forgives. And that's true. Because I still stumble in my sin. I still stumble in my temptations. I still, I'm, I'm anything but perfect. And, and you can hear these words. It doesn't matter. No condemnation. That's the way to hear it in the right way. You see that? There's so much here to consider in this story. This is, this is not a story about Jesus not caring about sin. This is a story about Jesus caring about justice, true justice. And this is a story about Jesus loving mercy. But mercy is mercy because we are not receiving what we deserve. And we are not receiving what we deserve because God has brought his just punishment down hard upon his son for us, for you. Therefore, in the power of the Spirit granted to you, go and sin no more. That is also what mercy does. Go and sin no more. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, let us pray. Lord, thank you for your goodness, for your forbearance and long-suffering of us, of our sexual immorality, of our hypocrisy, of our one-upsmanship over others, of our twisting of your word for our own good. Thank you for convicting us of our sins. Thank you. Thank you for convicting us of our stonewalling of you and your ways and for leading us to the one who paid for it all. Let all here who know our Lord and Savior, and may they all come to know him, hear his most potent words, no condemnation, and experience the peace of God, the friend of sinners. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Let's stand and respond. Number 449.